This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The moment is nearly here in hundreds of constituencies across the United Kingdom. The polls are about to close. It's 10 o'clock and we can give you the result of the joint broadcasters exit poll and it predicts what we're saying is that Labour is up. A staggering exit poll that, if true. We may very well be looking at Jeremy Corbyn as the next Prime Minister. Goes down as one of the most extraordinary shocks in uh, electoral history. Vindication for Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is heading to Downing Street. Happy Christmas election, Britain. It couldn't happen, could it? The polls have been wrong before. So what would a Jeremy Corbyn premiership look like? Welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. In this episode, we will explore the policies and the personalities that would make up a Labour government. Later, Alice Thompson and Rachel Sylvester on the ideas which Jeremy Corbyn would want to turn into reality. Plus, David Aronovich and Henry Zeffman on the people who would move into number 10. But first, to discuss those first days in office and what sort of Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn might be, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Andrew Gwynne, Labour's Shadow Community Secretary and Election Campaign Coordinator. Hello, Andrew. First of all, where are you? Well, I'm currently in a car heading down to Canterbury to knock on some doors for Rosie Duffield and uh, the sun's shining for once, a bit different to last week in Denton where it was um, hailing cats and dogs. Yeah, give it time. By the time we get to December the 12th, there'll be snow everywhere. Um, so, Andrew, <laughs> let's start with the sort of the, the first... First exam question, I suppose. What sort of Prime Minister will Jeremy Corbyn be? Well, I think Jeremy is going to be a very different kind of leader to one that we've grown accustomed to, very collegiate, wants to make sure that the team is firing on all cylinders. Um, And, you know, I'm really quite excited and buoyed up because... um, 
the ambition of the next Labour government isn't to tinker around at the edges for five years. It's to genuinely transform this country for the better. It's to do to Britain in the 21st century what that great reforming Attlee government did uh, in the 20th century. It's about changing the country for the better for the next 50 years, not the next five. Is it possible, do you think? I've looked at some of the speeches that Jeremy Corbyn's talked about, about how he'd be a different kind of Prime Minister. He was the sort of leader who wouldn't walk to a door and let the door slam behind those behind him. He would stand and hold the door open for everyone else. Is it possible to be a bold, radical, transformative Prime Minister while also trying to please everyone and being a consensual, um, get everyone on board, play nicely? So don't you need a bit of toughness and a bit of I'm the boss, I'm going to do what I want? to try well, to and be, deliver that big change. And, you know, to be fair, with what Jeremy Corbyn has been through over the last four years, he, he is tough, he is resilient, but you can do it with a smile and you can be kind and consensual as well. He's a team player, um, but we all know what Jeremy wants. We know that kind of transformative vision and, and drive that he's got to genuinely improve the lives of ordinary people across this country. Uh, and I actually think that um, given the chance, history will show him to be a great transformative leader of our country. He stands on the steps of Downing Street on December the 13th. He he announces, you know, let the real change begin, gets clapped in by the civil servants uh, through the door of number 10. There have been reports that some people in the Labour Party are worried that the civil service might have been taken hostage by the Tories, that you might have to have a bit of a clear out. Is that right? Is that something that you're you're worried about? Well, no, because civil servants, they're there to, to serve the government of the day. Um, many civil servants, actually, were there under the last Labour government. They've served uh, the coalition government and the current administration. They will serve the next Labour government dutifully. I'm not concerned about that. What I'm, what I'm really positive about, though, is that they know, because we've been working with them with access talks, they know the scale of our ambition. So the civil servants get to stay. Uh, one of the first jobs, also would be the reshuffle, appointing the cabinet. Have you been told what job you're going to get? Are you all going to stay in your job, your shadow jobs and go straight into government? <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. But look, whatever job I have, uh, if I have a job in the next Labour government, I will be there to serve the country and to make sure we get the best for the people who have stood by the Labour Party, the communities that so desperately need real change. Do you think uh, Corbyn cabinet would include a sort of broader range of people in the Labour Party? There's obviously, you know, when lots of other people walked away in the early days, he, he appointed people who, who were willing to be appointed, if you like. But do you think it would be an opportunity to expand the party? You know, there's been talk whether it's Ed Miliband coming into the cabinet and that sort of thing. These are Jeremy's decisions to make. But uh, what I do know is that he's got a very talented team of people to choose from and I would like to see people like Ed Miliband and their skills be used by the next Labour government of course I would. One of the next jobs a new Prime Minister's got to do is sign the letters of last resort that get sent to the uh, nuclear submarines so that in the event of communication being lost with London the commanders of the submarines know what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. There's been a lot of talk this week about what Jeremy Corbyn would do in that situation. What's your understanding of what Jeremy Corbyn would do? My understanding is Jeremy would never put the security of the nation at risk um, and he would act in the way that every Prime Minister, Labour and Conservative have acted over the past 70 years. He would take those responsibilities seriously and, you know, it's not a bad thing to have somebody that wants to ensure we live in a peaceful world, that wants to ensure that military action is always a last resort and will question 
uh, those that are pursuing the uh, use of military aims. That's not a bad thing. I actually think it's a good thing. But of course, if it comes down to it, Jeremy will always put the national interest first. So you think he'd sign a letter saying to use the nuclear deterrent? Well, he will sign a letter, as every other Prime Minister has done in the course of history. Um, What's in that letter, uh, we don't know, um, because we don't know what was in the the letters of any of the Prime Ministers uh, since the 1940s. But, of course, there will be a letter and... See, Andrew, you sound like someone who thinks that Jeremy Cornby would be quite a conventional Prime Minister and would allow the the use of military force where it was needed, which isn't really what the the message, the vibe that you get from Jeremy Corbyn, is it? I think that, you know, Jeremy is a different kind of leader in that he's not gung-ho. If there is an opportunity to resolve ahead of a conflict a situation through diplomatic means, that's exactly the kind of leader we want. It is the most serious decision that any prime minister would ever have to take but will he put the national interest first will he put the defense of the united kingdom first absolutely as every other prime minister has done and no doubt every other prime minister in the future will do let's just finally talk about uh, policy uh, at the time of the, the conservative short-lived queen's speech jeremy published a, a sort of uh, mini list of what would be in a Labour Queen's speech was a £10 minimum wage uh, which the Tory party promised to match ban fracking which the Tory party said they will do free personal care scrap tuition fees which is an old Lib Dem policy end rough sleeping I'm not sure anyone would disagree with that and uh, a second referendum on membership of the EU which is a sort of essentially stealing a Lib Dem uh, policy it's not that radical a programme really is it or are you just not trying to frighten the horses before you get into government Well, actually, I think we've got quite a transformational uh, programme, as I say, not tinkering around at the edges for uh, five years, but setting in course a direction of travel for the next 50 years. But of course, on day one of a Labour government, the main thing that we're going to be uh, tackling is uh, the scourge of rough sleeping, making sure that we get those resources to local authorities to tackle rough sleeping, but also ensuring that the NHS has the resources and tackling the social care crisis. These are early priorities and obviously getting that Brexit deal sorted within the first three months so that within six months of Labour taking office we can put this to the final sign-off of the British people alongside Remain as an option if that's what people want to choose in the end. It it struck me, particularly digging around in a lot of the opinion polls, that a lot of the policies you're putting forward are very popular but Jeremy really isn't. He's less popular than he was back in 2017. Why is that? Why is he a drag on the Labour poll ratings like that? For all the time that I've been a Labour Party member, there's been an element of the population that have always said, well, if you didn't have Leader X and had somebody else, the result would be different. Look, worry about the things you can change. And I know that in an election... Would you like to change Leader? Jeremy gets a fair hearing or a fairer hearing. And what we're already seeing is that poll gap is narrowing. There is a huge appetite for real change in this country, improving the National Health Service, giving kids a fair start in life with education and making sure this country is better, fairer and more equal. And that is what a Labour government under Jeremy Corbyn 
will deliver. Just fine, I do have to ask you about anti-Semitism. It continues to dog the party. The Equality and Human Rights Commission, a body set up by uh, Labour government, is investigating the Labour Party to see if it is institutionally racist, which strikes me as extraordinary. Do you personally think that Jeremy has a problem with anti-Semitism? I don't think that Jeremy does. Look, there are elements on the fringes of the party, very, very small number of people um, who have joined the party um, that actually we have been too slow to deal with. Um, the party is getting You've been saying that for, what, two years well, now you've been too slow? The party is now getting to grips with this. We have sped up the processes um, uh, under Jenny Formby. But look, one racist in, in our party is one too many. If you hold these beliefs, you have absolutely no place in the Labour Party and anti-Semitism or any other form of racism has no place in modern society. We are looking forward to uniting the country that has become bitterly uh, polarised, particularly since the 2016 referendum. Real change for the many and not the few. Very good. You've got the slogan in. Just finally, Andrew, what do you think of the chances? I don't know if you're a betting man. What are the odds of Jeremy ending up as PM? I think they're, uh, they're, they're really quite positive. Things are very fluid at the moment, but we are in this race to win it. It is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to transform this country. That was Andrew Gwynn, Labour's Shadow Community Secretary and Election Coordinator. So what will those Labour policies actually look like? What will they mean in practice? Uh, Times columnists Alice Thompson and Rachel Sylvester carried out an investigation into the Corbyn agenda, and they join me now. I suppose before we uh, start talking about the policies... Um, um, Rachel, we should talk about the maths, how exactly it is that Jeremy Corbyn gets into Downing Street, because it could be anything from a hung parliament with the largest party to a stonking Labour majority. Exactly, and I think nobody actually realistically thinks it's going to be a massive landslide on the scale of 1997. So however radical Labour's agenda is, in a way, almost certainly Corbyn domestically at least, is going to be constrained by Parliament, because you won't only have Liberal Democrats and SNP who they may be relying on to get their policies through, but also quite a lot of moderate Labour MPs who have absolutely no intention of backing the more kind of extreme Marxist ideas. In fact, I was speaking to a senior Lib Dem the other day who said that they were still in talks with Labour MPs about defecting after the election. Right, The idea yeah. is they get elected on the Labour platform and if that needs be, they'll defect. So well, certainly I spoke to one Labour MP who, who said, you know, there's absolutely no way we're going to give him a free run. Will we vote for his Queen's speech? Maybe. We'll see what's in it. Alice, one of the things that really struck me in the series that you did was um, the sort of the difference between the domestic and the foreign policy. Actually, a lot of the domestic policy, though expensive, and there are arguments about how radical it is. Quite a lot of it is quite popular or populist, I'm, but it's the foreign policy which tends to set alarm bells ringing. So the foreign policy is really scary, but then you look at the domestic policy and their issues like the four-day working week is something that not many people are really going to complain about. In fact, they're going to rather like, even though it could cost 17 billion more, people are going to like that kind of idea. That was a figure that, that was worked out by the Centre for Policy yes, Studies. Yes, so they, they've worked out the figures and actually no one really knows because you could add in or subtract various workers, but it, is, it would be extremely expensive but people would like working 32 hour weeks I mean it's it, it's not difficult to sell and there are lots of other little ones like that the education policy I have a feeling that actually putting VAT on private schools and getting rid of their charitable status there are only 7% of the country who are at private school that's going to be quite popular and there are other ones like you know we heard today that there's the, the idea that you could have lifelong learning and that you could go back to university for free that could be very popular all of them are going to cost huge amounts but they are significant into different sectors of people who would actually quite like them and then 
on the education there's also quite a lot of things like scrapping sats which aren't going to cost that much money but Jeremy Corbyn's definitely got the idea that people don't like too many exams and you know they're, they're green agendas the idea of scrapping private jets is quite a good idea because most of us have never been on a private jet so and actually 40% of the time private jets aren't don't actually have any passengers in them they're just they're flying around picking people up yeah exactly yeah. and also there is quite a sort of popular tinge to this anti-super rich Thing. I mean, Lloyd Russell Moyle saying, you know, there shouldn't be any billionaires is going a bit far. But the idea that the super rich have sort of floated mm. off from the rest of society and that there needs to be a rebalancing is, I think, something that could be quite popular. Mm. But I think there is, uh, John McDonnell is quite happy to describe himself as a Marxist. He really does see a sort of revolution going on. He wants at the Treasury, he'd want to introduce a sort of nationalisation unit instead of the privatisation unit and rewrite all the rules they use to decide which policy should get money to put more of an emphasis onto inequality and green issues but I think that also he's it's about rebalancing so it's it's a redistribution of wealth and power is how he describes it so it's quite a sort of it could be popular but it's sort of the danger is what's the impact on the economy and on business and do the wealthy and business and industry panic just on the treasury stuff we've obviously seen this week the sort of early skirmishes on spending and the Tories claiming that Labour are going to spend a trillion pounds based on a manifesto we haven't even seen yet how difficult is it do you think for the Tories to keep making this attack on sort of irresponsible spending given that they're promising to spend actually the same amount as the Labour Party promised in 2017? Well so far we don't actually know what the Labour Party is going to spend because they haven't announced their commitments on health or education in full and the problem with the Conservatives making these attacks a that 1.3 trillion figure is completely ridiculous as far as I can work out is double and nobody counting. can even work out what that means no <laughs> it means nothing in terms of the scale of the number but actually they for example they they count in the fact that Labour is going to abolish private schools which Labour specifically said they're not going to do so that undermines the credibility but more importantly the Conservatives themselves have said they're going to borrow huge amounts of money to spend they're in danger themselves of losing that kind of political stick to beat Labour with that they're the economically credible ones it's muddying the waters at best but they can't say they're the sort of fiscally responsible ones anymore really there was a time in politics where the sort of the consensus being that we had to tighten our belts and deal with the deficit where labor will spend more was a bad thing and now, Whereas yeah. now it's all they're about sort of doing labor's yeah. exactly and where the money really does need to be spent it was striking that the institute for fiscal studies looked at the john mcdonald plan to spend 55 billion pounds mm. more a year and it so it raised questions not about how they would find the money but the public sector's ability to spend, spend it on time yeah. they literally couldn't shovel it out the door quick enough it was so much money um, let's just touch on foreign policy rachel because this is where in the series that you did there were most concerns and actually former labor cabinet ministers raising concerns about the sort of national security and that sort of thing under jeremy corbyn yeah so there are two big issues here one is his attitude to the nuclear deterrent which he said he would never use nuclear missiles um he's never voted for any british government backed war in his time as a MP. Although he says he's not a pacifist, in what circumstances would he endorse a NATO-backed operation, for example? Uh, and there are also worries about his previous associations with dodgy figures talking about Hamas as friends. He's very anti-American. Uh, and some of the intelligence and foreign office people we spoke to suggested that um, there could be problems with the intelligence sharing with other countries through the what's called the Five Eyes Alliance. And so the Trident round blew up again this week because Emily Thornby, the Shadow mm -hmm. Foreign Secretary, was asked. Uh, in fact, she, did, she told the TV studios when she basically got monstered by first Piers Morgan and then 
the Today uh, programme uh, and Nick Ferrari and LBC, everywhere she went, she was asked this question, what would Jeremy Corbyn do? Um, she was asked at one point, if the north of England had been nuked and there was another one on the way to London, what would Jeremy Corbyn do? And she replied, who knows? Uh, I think they later got to a position of he would decide what to do by consensus. But as Rachel was pointing out, the whole point of writing the letters of last resort is this is what happens if London is wiped out in the event of... uh... Well, it's all up to the Prime Minister, really. That's the problem with these kind of issues. They're very much Prime Minister-led. And actually, Ian Austin, who is the former Labour MP who was in Downing Street and an advisor to Gordon Brown, he talked to us in an interview and he was very worried because if you've been in Number 10, you really do understand just how much control these Prime Ministers have over issues of foreign and defence issues. And I think that's the problem, is that Jeremy Corbyn is going to have the final say. And the other problem is that he's then offering to pay vast amounts for Trident by making it very, very clear that he's not going to use it. And that's totally disastrous. You either have Trident and make it very clear you'll use it, or you just don't have it at all. We don't want to spend billions just because the trade unions don't want to lose jobs. And in the end, it's about the Prime Minister's instincts, because often these decisions are made have to be made incredibly quickly. You know, if in the hypothetical scenario there's a nuclear missile heading for London... You have to decide quick. You don't have time to convene a committee or a sort of, you know, <laughs> Labour Party compositing motion meeting to decide what to do. You have to decide almost on instinct. But several people said to us that Jeremy Corbyn's instincts in the past have always been to side with Britain's enemies. And it's partly that sort of anti-imperial, anti-Western, left-wing instinct, which is your sort of your enemy's enemies, your friends. So when the Skripal attack happened in Salisbury, he immediately questioned the intelligence advice that this was Russian government Kremlin originated. I suppose the flip side of the argument is that actually given all of the wars and conflicts that the UK has been in, I do wonder sometimes if actually maybe not being an enthusiast for firing nuclear missiles might be popular with the public. I was quite interested that Mary Beard uh, actually tweeted after Emily Thornberry had been on the Today programme that there wasn't anything wrong in being a pacifist and what, why were we all getting so wound up about it and actually maybe it was a good thing that Jeremy Corbyn hadn't wanted to go to war. Were any of these wars actually, in hindsight, necessary? And that that's quite difficult, but then it's more what Rachel was saying it's the fact that he always sides with the other side and that you know you just look at the issue of the IRA you know you have got a problem with the real IRA again what side would Jeremy Corbyn be on and that is very dangerous I suppose we should just touch on Brexit as well I think what uh, you wrote Rachel that Corbyn's done almost sort of Blairite triangulation uh, on this doing exactly the sort of politics that he uh, supposedly despised in Tony Blair of trying to please everyone and find a third way through the middle yeah it's quite interesting because the people who absolutely adored him the people who chanted his name at Glastonbury were these young enthusiastic Corbynistas who idolised him to the, at the beginning. But they're almost all very pro-European, very anti-Brexit. And a lot of them are now starting to lose faith with him because of this kind of Blairite triangulation. Um, the policy, if Labour got in, what they're saying is that within six months, they'd renegotiate a splendid new deal, which actually Keir Starmer's already been speaking to people in Brussels. And he says he's confident that it would be relatively straightforward to get something sorted and they would then put that to a referendum the campaign would launch for the referendum within six months they can't say how officially the government would whether it would back remain or leave in that referendum Um, but most of the front benches have said they would back remain 
And it's interesting that actually, if you look at the, given that they are going to negotiate a softer Brexit inside the customs union, the options are basically soft Brexit or no Brexit. So mm. the danger with that position is it doesn't solve anything because the Brexiteers, the the sort of true believing Brexiteers, won't believe, won't feel they've had a proper Brexit option on the referendum ballot paper. It's almost like the issue will never be settled. <laughs> um, <laughs> just finally, what what do you think of the the chances at this stage of Jeremy Corbyn being on the steps of Downing Street in? On December the 13th. I think Nigel Farage has made a difference, actually, by by having a pact just in those Tory seats. It slightly puts the pressure off Boris Johnson. I'm not, I think Rachel slightly disagrees with that, but I, I think there is a difference now. I think you feel that they're more united on one side than the other, and that might be beneficial. More united them. on the leave than the right. Yes. Actually, yeah. It suddenly looks, they look more, they look more together, they look more efficient, they look more organised. But I think the idea that Jeremy Corbyn is going to be standing there with a large majority is almost ludicrous, actually. The thing is, everything's so unpredictable and in all parts of the country. There are going to be so many conflicting results. It's very hard to see. But what I think the problem for Boris Johnson is he has to do better than Theresa May did last time, because he doesn't have the DUP to rely on so he has to in order to avoid all the other parties ganging up on him and putting Jeremy Corbyn into number 10 he has to do better so it is possible that Corbyn could get there um, sort of slip through the middle but as Alice said I don't think he's going to be a you know triumphant strong prime minister if he does get there at all it would be he would be restrained by many, uh, both in Parliament and the civil service, restrained in his radicalism. And so it could end up being a hung Parliament, so we end up having another election in the spring. John McDonnell said to us if there wasn't a majority Labour government, they wouldn't form a coalition with the Lib Dems or the SNP. They'd try to govern as a minority government and then put various proposals to Parliament. And if the opposition parties didn't back them, they'd call another election. Alice Thompson and Rachel Sylvester. In a moment, who will be the people sitting around the cabinet table and lurking in the corridors of number 10? I'll be joined by David Aronovich and Henry Zeffman. I'll be back after this short break. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. OK, let's talk about the personnel in a Corbyn government. I'm now joined by David Aronovich and Henry Zeffman. Before we begin, at Labour's election campaign launch, Henry asked the Labour leader who he would take into government. Uh, you're here with your whole shadow cabinet today. If you win this election, 
can you confirm now that all of them are going to go into the corresponding jobs in government? So, for example, Emily Thornberry, Foreign Secretary, Tom Watson, Culture Secretary. Thank you very much for the question about um, the Shadow Cabinet and all the others. Um, it really would not be appropriate to decide on the appointments and makeup of the next Labour government on this platform here today. But I do thank you for your advice. It's, it's gratefully received. Tell me what was striking about Jeremy's answer was that um, he wouldn't guarantee anybody's job in government. That's right, although I, I, I specifically said, uh, can you guarantee Tom Watson's job as Culture Secretary? And obviously, since then, Tom Watson has abandoned politics to take a level two qualification in personal training, very much putting the <laughs> exercise into stay and fight. But uh, Jeremy Corbyn, David and I were just discussing, the, the thing to understand about a Jeremy Corbyn government is that in the scenario that Jeremy Corbyn is going into Downing Street, he's won. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn would have free reign should he perform the most amazing uh, feat of uh, politics for some decades and go from being a totally anonymous backbencher four years ago to being prime minister, the most left-wing prime minister uh, arguably Britain's ever had. In the circumstances in which he has accomplished that, he really can appoint who he'd like. Should he decide to stick with his existing shadow cabinet a lot of them do support him that's a consequence of most of them quitting in 2016 he originally appointed a compromise cabinet most of them quit in 2016 to back a leadership challenge owen smith failed owen smith's also left politics now to the extent he's uh, ever in it <laughs> sure uh yeah owen, owen smith's campaign talking about his inside leg measurement didn't deliver him the labor leadership funnily enough jeremy corbyn now has a shadow cabinet mostly but not exclusively comprised of loyalists now there are some tension points uh, particularly on foreign policy, which is the thing that Jeremy Corbyn has been most interested in for most of his career. If Emily Thornberry is Foreign Secretary and also a lower profile figure, if Nia Griffith is Defence Secretary, I don't see those relationships being all sweetness and light, particularly if Jeremy Corbyn does what I think he'd want to do, which is really profoundly reorientate the UK's foreign policy alliances. David, to what extent do you think that if we put policy to one side for a sec... <laughs> <laughs> To what extent is Jeremy Corbyn up to the job of being Prime Minister? Well, he isn't at all. There are some arguments about whether Boris Johnson is up to the job of being Prime Minister. And uh, uh, it feels to me like it's some time, really, since we had a Prime Minister who was up to the job of being Prime Minister. So this is not a kind of totally unique situation. There is nothing that I have seen in what Jeremy Corbyn can do either thinking on his feet or absorbing detail or making uh, tricky decisions, really tricky, and very, very difficult decisions, that suggests he's up to any of it. He doesn't even like answering questions. Under the circumstances Henry's talking about, you've got to imagine that people in the Labour Party will literally see him like a Rubens apotheosis of St Peter, you know, surrounded yeah. by gold, etc., ascending to uh, the azure skies of heaven. But they will. That's what he'll be. He will be untouchable, and he will regard himself, presumably, to a certain extent. He's going to be affected by this to a certain extent. Extent. Do I think that he will make a competent prime minister in the usual ways that we have become to see competence in prime ministers? No. He'll hate being asked questions at prime minister's question time. He'll loathe it. I mean, every time somebody says you failed on this and failed on that, and after all, mostly what happens to you in government is you fail. Will he like it? No. I mean, I think it is hard to find any evidence that Jeremy Corbyn is going to enjoy or thrive in the daily grind of running the country. I mean, I've just read David Cameron's exhaustive autobiography, and one thing that it does hammer home amongst all the other things is just the volume of decision-making which Prime Ministers are required to confront. Jeremy Corbyn has not really ever held any kind of 
executive level job plenty of prime ministers haven't but he hasn't and also he didn't seem to much enjoy the sort of westminster element of being leader of the opposition i mean the labor campaign is predicated on two essential things firstly is boris johnson is a horrible tough uh, and so on Um, and second if you want any money we're going to give it to you and no, no one will have to pay. You can argue, and I know you've had been discussion how far that's, that, 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 that is credible. Governing is all about giving people news they don't want to hear. It's where there you get into, in, into loss aversion, which is that the people you do give money to won't thank you for it after a while. And the people you take any money away from will actually get to be very loud and very, uh, and very vocal. So as John McDonnell says, well, actually, the top 5% will have to pay a bit more. A significant proportion of the top 5%, because it's so much more expensive, for instance, live in London. He will find himself taking under the net of extra tax, uh, of significant extra taxation, people who don't, re- don't regard themselves as being in any way particularly wealthy. Now, when these people start to you know, get going and you have to deal with them, how do you deal with that rhetorically? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has made them, uh, in the context of the election, all the enemy. You know, they're the plutocrats, they're the kind of, you know, the landlords, the this is, the that's, etc. I mean, all kinds of sounds a little bit like... In fact, this is where Boris on the Kulaks gets it a little bit right, because some of the kind of linguistic tropes are not completely a million miles away from those that we use under other circumstances, although I don't seriously think that Jeremy Corbyn is going to organise a mass extermination of uh, top peasants. Um, I don't think that's going to be one of his responses. If Jeremy Corbyn became Prime Minister, John McDonnell would be... Chancellor. Yes, he would. And I think he would be the most powerful Chancellor uh, for a very long time. Gordon Brown, as Tony Blair's Chancellor, sort of controlled or tried to control domestic policy more generally. uh, But he was constrained by the fact that him and Blair couldn't stand each other, particularly towards the end. And he wasn't in the heart of, in the sort of cockpit of New Labour strategising at that time. George Osborne also was a very important Chancellor at the heart of David Cameron's political strategy and got on very well with him, but perhaps didn't have the control over the sweep of domestic policy, which Gordon Brown did. John McDonnell is Jeremy Corbyn's closest political ally, would be at the heart of that government's political strategy and would be basically at the head of Labour's domestic policy, which he's much more interested in than Jeremy Corbyn. To an extent, to understand what a Jeremy Corbyn government would look like, you have to understand John McDonnell. Now, he definitely has thought very deeply about how he would like the Treasury to operate internally. Francis Elliott and I interviewed him just before Labour Party conference and asked him what book he would want Sir Tom Scholar, who is the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, to read to understand what his government would be like uh, and he I've forgotten its, its name now. Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe <laughs> no well it wasn't it was, it, it was I can't remember precisely it's not parliamentary socialism it was Ralph Miliband's last book uh, so, I so that piece. you know, John, John McDonnell has a very serious and developed sense of how he wants the Treasury to operate. He has been so Bob Kerslake, who was the head of the civil service for a time under David Cameron, is ludicrously heard on radio programmes as a, as a former head of the civil service. Much more importantly, he's been advising John McDonnell on how to use the levers of the civil service to his benefit for a few years now. They actually know each other from John McDonnell's days at the GLC. John McDonnell, unlike Corbyn, does have a bit of executive experience, though it went quite badly and Ken Livingstone sacked him for effectively being too left-wing for Ken Livingstone uh, and trying to set an illegal budget. Uh, David, what about other people? Will we see Diane Abbott at the Home Office, Emily Thornberry at the Foreign Office? Firstly, there's the problem of the transition to actually being... It's one thing to knock around saying everything this government does is ridiculous and we want to do X, Y and Z. The Home Office 
is the most difficult office of state bar none. It's more difficult than the Chancellor. It's arguably more difficult often than the Prime Minister. It has a higher casualty rate than any of them. Prisoners escape on your beat. Um, everything goes wrong. Uh, ca- uh, the, you know, ca- the Calais ca- camp is reconstituted on your beat and people expect you to know what to do about it and so on. Um, I have absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Diane Abbott knows what to do about any of these things other than to oppose other what, what it is that other people are doing. I honestly really can't see it. Um, so I think there's a very big question about how long that would last. And I mean, Labour, whenever, whenever Diane Abbott's had a kind of, you know, bit of a problem, Labour turned around and said, well, she's not very well. And she's had this thing and she's had that kind of thing and so on. And I kind of wonder how long, if she got to be Home Secretary, her tenure as Home Secretary would actually last. And there is obviously a kind of pressure that's going to come on from Corbyn's own office, probably, to move on the ancient leftists and bring in the new bright-eyed, bushy-tailed leftists into the big positions. Uh, a foreign office under Emily Thornberry, here's the problem, they don't agree. Corbyn is an unrepentant old France fanonite, uh, uh, really, uh, who kind of believes that the wretched of the earth must rise up, etc. You see in his immediate response to events in Bolivia, it's a US-backed coup, it's absolutely dreadful, and why shouldn't Marat, this present Morales go on for 130 years if he wants to, and yeah, etc. Emily Thornberry says no such, and believes no such thing. Emily Thornberry believes a much more, if you like, conventional set of things about Britain's place in the world and its alliances and so on. You can't imagine how that discussion... The, the answer to that itself. conflict, I, th- I think I can imagine how that conflict would resolve itself, which is that in the circumstance in which Jeremy Corbyn has won an election, or won an election to a sufficient degree that he is Prime Minister, he would win because he would have the authority over the Labour Party to say, I want a general election with my... Uh, view of politics, view of the world, which was previously deemed unconventional. It turns out there is a big audience for that in the UK, and therefore, I'm the Prime Minister, I prevail. And just finally, uh, what about the team around Corbyn, the people going, who'll be lurking in the corridors of Downing Street, essentially running the government, Chief of Staff, Communications Director, that sort of thing? Well, there's been quite a lot of flux in Corbyn's office recently. So his Chief of Staff, until very recently, in the Leader of the Opposition's office, was uh, someone called Carrie Murphy, who much has been written about. Uh, quite a divisive figure, although even her detractors say that she was hugely effective in hammering through what she wanted to get through. She's been replaced by a former senior civil servant, in fact, a woman called Helen Bond. Uh, So perhaps she would move into Downing Street as chief of staff because she has experience of how the civil service operates. Perhaps there might be a more formal role for Bob Kerslake, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, Actually, a really important role, which he would probably have to fill, is the head of policy. So his head of policy through his entire stretch as leader of the opposition has been a man called Andrew Fisher, who quit uh, just before Labour conference, replacing him with someone similarly sort of respected and liked across the parliamentary Labour Party uh, would be quite a tall order, I think. So just finally then, what are the chances of Jeremy Corbyn being on the step to Downing Street on December the 13th? I think they're practically zero. But there's no poll that I've seen that has given Labour within a, a, any kind of distance of, uh, of a majority or even of being the largest party. I can't see it. Henry? Uh, I don't think it's practically zero. Firstly, four weeks is, is, a, is a way to go. There's a man scarred by 2017. <laughs> <laughs> uh, y- yes, admittedly. But also, it is just possible that the Tories' poll lead is in large part composed of building up enormous 
uh, majorities in seats that they already hold, uh, you know, not the sort of so-called left-behind Leave voting seats, but actually the shires, which many of many of which voted Leave, which we don't talk about nearly as much because it doesn't fit into that narrative. Left-behind stockbrokers. Right, exactly. <laughs> it is also possible that those people who uh, had voted Labour all their lives, then voted Leave, but didn't come across for the relatively classless daughter of a vicar, Theresa May, funnily enough, don't then take the leap to vote Tory when Alexander Boris okay, Defecle Johnson... Henry, I have to say, you're stacking them all up in a particular direction because... No, I'm just making no, the case. No, no, I'm of course, making uh, you know, you're making the case, but you're making the case by stacking it all up in, in the of direction. Course. And of course, if all that happens in that kind of way, and they get absolutely ludicrously huge majorities in the stockbroker belt and then get a bit squeaked out in all these other seats, then they won't. I mean, even the grime for Corbyn people have decided they're not going to grime for Corbyn again in 2019 and you know some things you know canaries in coal mines or, or whatever they're not you know they're literally not singing as ever David confirming his reputation as the red box grime correspondent uh, David Ivanovich heavy effort thanks so much that's all we've got time for in this week's episode if you want to come and see my stand-up show this is not normal it's the last show this Thursday at the Exeter Phoenix there's a few tickets left and if you want to just hear my voice uh, more often every week then subscribe to the podcast on Apple Spotify wherever you listen so you don't miss a single episode including this Friday special episode when we've got a chat with Professor Sir John Curtis who knows more about polling than anyone else in the world and you can sign up to my morning email so you can get red box in your inbox every morning at the times.co.uk forward slash red box but for now for me Matt Chorley it's goodbye this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by Luton Rising owners of London Luton Airport the UK's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.